Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry and thank you for joining me today as we study to learn God's will for us in these last days. Your prayers and support for Keep the Faith means so much to me personally. Also, thanks to all of you for your gifts to help us with our work at Keep the Faith, and especially to help start our brand new health retreat in Amaru Gardens near Adelaide, South Australia. We'll keep you informed about its progress. I hope you find the message the Lord has given me today a great blessing. I am praying that it will help you see how you can be an overcomer in the battle for your eternal salvation. After all, we're living at the end of time. I'm praying that you will gain a walk with Christ so full that he will take you from where you are right into eternity. But before we begin, I want to urge you to sign up for our email KTF Insider. The KTF Insider brings you heartwarming stories of God's power in the lives of those we reach. It also brings you updates on key developments that keep the faith so that you can keep abreast of what God is doing and how he uses your support to change lives for eternity. The heartwarming KTF Insider comes every month in your email box. You'll be inspired as you read what God has done. Also, please go to our new website for updates and developments in fulfilling prophecy in the news. Our new website is up and running, and we are now shifting all traffic to that site. You'll find the new look refreshing and inspiring. The website address is ktfnews.com. Check it out. Our new website also features a link to all of our English sermons and prophetic intelligence briefings, all our language translations of our monthly sermons in Spanish, Portuguese, and German, a link to other websites, including one that will give you guidance on how to prevent getting Ebola, a link to the website for Highwood Health Retreat, and much, much more. That website address, again, is ktfnews.com. And please take a look at Amaru Water Gardens, our brand new place in South Australia for a health retreat. God has definitely moved to open the way. And there's a link to the story of how God brought it about and pictures on our website. Uh, and you can find that link on the sidebar. We hope to be up and running with the health retreat very soon. Our renovations at Highwood Health Retreat in Victoria are moving along too. We're making good progress. If there is anyone with building or practical skills that would still like to come and volunteer for a while at Highwood, we would welcome you. We will have plenty of work to do for quite a few months yet as we work to make Highwood all that it can be. Please pray for our medical missionary work in Victoria and South Australia. It's not easy, and as we expand under the blessing and providence of God, we are up against the enemy of souls, and we need your prayers. Today we're going to study a very important topic as we begin this new year. I have often spoken quite a number of times in the past about how important it is to get into the secret place of the Most High mentioned in Psalm 91. Today I want to share with you some of the secrets of getting into the secret place and staying there. 
And as we begin, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word, which teaches us all truth. It shows us your will, and we pray that you will send your Holy Spirit today as we study to know how to live in these last days. We are living in the most important time in history. All through the ages, godly men and women have longed for this time. They have all had their place, but we are now down to the last few moments of earth's history, and what a time to be alive. Please, Father, let us not miss out on eternity by falling into the devices of Satan. Help us to understand the secret place of the Most High, so that we may be able to abide there and be under the shadow of His protection. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let us read Psalm 91, verse 1. You probably know it well, but it is such a wonderful verse that it is worth reading every day. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The Almighty is God Himself. To dwell means to live or stay in this secret place, and the shadow is God's protection. Living in the secret place of the heavenly sanctuary is a spiritual concept that has many practical and personal applications. It has great meaning, actually. You cannot go there in person, at least not now. Therefore, to dwell in the secret place means you live in a certain way by faith. It is an experience. The Bible interprets itself, and Psalm 27, verse 5, tells us where the secret place is. That's Psalm 27, verse 5. Let's read it together. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. Well, friends, this should be clear to us. The secret place is in the tabernacle. The tabernacle of God is in heaven. So the secret place where we have to go for protection from Satan in these last days especially during the time of trouble, is actually in heaven. <laughs> well, since we cannot get there physically, we have to go there only by faith. In the sanctuary on earth, there was a rock in the tabernacle. That was the Ten Commandments, and it was in what part of the sanctuary? That's right, it was in the most holy place. When Christ sets your feet upon a rock, he causes you to live by the Ten Commandments while you are in the secret place. Or rather, you're in the secret place because you're living by the Ten Commandments. That's what it means to be in the secret place. It is the experience of the most holy place, and Christ will put you under the shadow of his protection. When you live by those Ten Commandments, you are living by faith in Christ, who is ministering in the inner sanctum of a heavenly sanctuary. There's no better place to be, my friends. Why is it secret? That's because many people do not believe that it exists. It's secret because they do not want to find it, and they cannot find it. They do not want the experience of living a very different life than what they already live. Only those who understand the experience of the most holy place can dwell in the secret place. In fact, the secret place is the most holy place, according to that verse, Psalm 27, verse 5. And what an experience it is. Can you imagine living in such a way that you hate sin so much that you stop doing it and live totally in harmony with the Ten Commandments? We'll come back to that thought. Most people cannot even begin to comprehend what it means to live in the most holy place experience. They're still living in the holy place experience. Do you know what that is? 
The holy place was the place where sins were atoned for every day throughout the whole year. The sins were symbolically taken away from the repentant sinner and placed on the sanctuary itself. The sinner would go home forgiven. And when he sinned again, he would come, bring another lamb. The sacrifice would be made, and the sinner would go home free again. This cycle is repeated as often as was necessary. Sin, bring a lamb, receive forgiveness, and go home. Sin again, bring another lamb, receive forgiveness, and go home, and so forth. The sins would symbolically accumulate on the sanctuary. But once a year, the high priest, representing Christ, would symbolically remove the sins from the sanctuary and place them on the scapegoat, which represents Satan. The Day of Atonement had very important meaning. It represents the period of time down at the end of earth's history, just before the close of probation, in which Jesus would prepare a people to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. Listen to this from the book Great Controversy, page 425. Those who are living upon the earth when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above are to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. So when Christ leaves the most holy place, there will be no more mediator. And while in the most holy place, Christ continues his ministry of forgiveness and intercession for repentant sinners, just like in the holy place. But the special work of Christ in the most holy place is not just to intercede for sin, but to also prepare a people to live in the sight of a holy God. That means that he is purifying their characters and helping them to learn to hate sin so much that they would rather die than commit one wrong act. Here it is from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 53. Those who would rather die than perform a wrong act are the only ones who will be found faithful. Those who love Christ supremely will automatically have this attitude. They will esteem the approval of God of far more value than anything this earth has to offer. This Christ proposes to accomplish in the hearts of his true followers in the last days. That is why he has given them more light than any previous generation. He wants the, them to have a fully mature spiritual experience with him, especially in the secret place, in the most holy place. This is a unique position. And it's very important, my friends, because when Jesus leaves his atoning work in the most holy place in order to come back to earth and collect his faithful people, then probation is over. There's no more mediation for sin, no more mediator in the most holy place any longer. There's no more forgiveness for sins. Everyone will have made a final decision for Christ or against him. No one is willing to change their minds anymore on either side of the controversy. Either they love God with all their hearts or they hate him with all their hearts. It's that simple. The issue in the world will bring about the maturing of the final test, including the last movement spelled out to us in the prophecies of Scripture including the globalized worship of the beast, or the papacy, Sunday laws, anti-Sabbath laws, and all that goes with it. The final movements on earth will bring the issue that is so long anticipated to the forefront. But God's people will live in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. How do they do that? Do you know what that means? That's an incredible thought, and it has to do with our subject today. The reason we need a mediator is because we sin. The mediator is the one who applies the atonement on the cross to our sins. The only way we do not need a mediator for sin is when we do not sin. 
That's not saying that we don't need a savior. It's only saying that we don't need a mediator because you only need a mediator when you sin. And all have sinned, so we all need a savior. But we also need a mediator so long as we continue in sin. Those who are living in the experience of the holy place will never find the secret place because they are unwilling to put sin out of their lives by the power of God. In other words, Jesus' work in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary is to prepare people to live without sin. That was not his work in the holy place, only in the most holy. Oh, my friends, I need this badly. I need to have the purification of my heart, my thoughts, my motives, even my innermost feelings, my priorities, my aims. Don't you want it too? I'm sure you do. And this will prepare them for the time of trouble. This will draw them into the vortex of Satan's assault, those who are living in the most holy place, those who are living in the secret place. Satan wants to torment them and persecute them and to answer the issues in the great conflict between himself and Christ. He must be permitted to provoke them if he can, like he was given permission to provoke Job. But the last generation will be so close to Christ that like Job, they will resist the temptation to give up their faith and turn their backs on God. Their minds are made up. They have yielded everything to Christ, and there's nothing left to give him. Now they are his, and he can let Satan turn up the heat. He will throw Satan's argument that God's law cannot be kept back in his face. He will prove that he has the power to give complete victory over sin. This is going to frustrate Satan immeasurably, and he'll be very angry. But God is more powerful, and he will sustain his faithful children under his shadow of protection, who are determined to do nothing that will displease God. Listen to this interesting statement found in the book Great Controversy, page 605 and 606. Heretofore, those who presented the truths of the third angel's message have often been regarded as mere alarmists. Their predictions that religious intolerance would gain control in the United States, that church and state would unite to persecute those who keep the commandments of God, have been pronounced groundless and absurd. It has been confidently de declared that this land could never become other than what it has been, the defender of religious freedom. But as the question of enforcing Sunday observance is widely agitated, the event so long doubted and disbelieved is seen to be approaching, and the third message will produce an effect which it could not have had before. The third angel's message of Revelation 14, 9, and 10 gives us the true understanding of the times that are before us. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This is a terrible warning to all who would spurn the loving call of Christ, to leave all false worship and join with his people in the secret place of the Most High, living by the Ten Commandments. If they don't, they will harden their hearts against Christ and yield to the pressure to join the ranks of Satan and worship the only religion that has the global power to influence and compel all nations to worship in her way. That power is the papacy, my friends. 
There's no other entity on the planet that can match the descriptions given to us in Scripture. When Revelation 13 verse 8 tells us that all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him or the beast, that is referring to global worship of Rome or the papacy. The fact that Rome is the great promoter of Sunday rest and Sunday worship should make us all sit up and carefully examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith or if we are compromising with Rome. You may think that just because you worship on the seventh day of the week, God's holy Sabbath, and that you are returning a faithful tithe and offering, then you're okay. But friends, if you're not living by faith, the faith of Jesus, and resting your life on the principles of the Ten Commandments, you will not ultimately resist the temptations of Satan or the pressure to join the global religion. Your life will be more important to you than the reputation of God and His law. Where are you going to dwell? Revelation 13.8 says, All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. So if you're going to dwell upon the earth, you will worship the beast. If you dwell in the secret place, you will not worship the beast, but you will worship Christ and the Most High. You see, this verse in Revelation is certainly talking about the physical earth and those who live in it, but it's much more than that. This compelling verse is referring to a spiritual concept. If your mind dwells on the things of earth, and you commune with earthly and sensual things, you're dwelling upon the earth, and you will worship the beast. If your mind dwells on Christ and his character, you dwell in the secret place. This is impossible for anyone to do unless they have surrendered their whole self to Christ. Philippians 3, verse 18 to 20 says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see there is a huge difference between those that dwell upon the earth and the ones who dwell in the secret place. And now we have a clue as to what it means to dwell in the secret place. It has to do with how your mind thinks and how you act on those thoughts. To keep your mind off of earthly things, you cannot just empty it. But instead, you have to fill it. If you want to live in the secret place of the Most High, you will have to discipline your mind to think on heavenly things and avoid anything that is earthly, sensual, or low quality. Let's get practical. James 3, 14-16 says, But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Well, that passage is clear, isn't it? If you want to live in the secret place of the Most High, you have to lose any earthly ambition. Do you know how you can tell if, you're, if you have earthly ambition? You can tell, for instance, if you have envy against someone else. You can tell if there's anger in your heart or strife in there against someone else. This is not the wisdom of the secret place. It is the wisdom of the earth. Envy and strife are only two ways in which we can dwell upon the earth, and it is central and devilish and causes confusion and every evil work. That's serious stuff, my friends. And if I'm going to live in the secret place of the Most High, I have to learn how to let go of every ambition to have supremacy over anyone else. I have to learn to have a heart that is passive to earthly aspirations and objectives, 
My goals have to be entirely disconnected from the aim of getting money or possessions. I must put away all jealousy and pride, otherwise every evil work will be a record of my life. Oh, friends, I don't want that, do you? Instead of dwelling upon the earth, I must follow the principles of wisdom from above. Here it is in James 3, verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. I must be a peacemaker if I am to live in the secret place of the Most High and be under the shadow of the Almighty. I have to be gentle and kind. Is that natural? No. I have to be easily entreated, right? That's not natural either. In my work, sometimes I have people who confront me with what they think is wrong, or what I, th what I say, or what I do. Sometimes they are very abrasive, and even can be borderline abusive. And when that happens, I have to be very nice and sweet to them in return. I cannot respond with angry words or treat them as, it, as they treat me. No, no, I have to be easy to be entreated, and I have to be kind and gentle. I also must be full of mercy, the Bible says. He hath shown thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. If I am going to dwell in the secret place of the Most High, my life must be a witness by the good fruits that I have in my character. Justice, mercy, and humility. And if my character is full of good fruits and no bad fruits, I am in harmony with the Ten Commandments, aren't I? Love has to be my ruling passion. Joy must be my underlying attitude. And peace must be in my heart at all times, no matter how provoked. Oh, friends, I need this, don't you? How much freedom do you really want from Satan's controlling power in your life? If you want freedom, real and true freedom, my friends, you can have it. All you need to do is turn yourself over to Jesus, not only in the morning when you wake up, but every thought during the day. Dwelling in the secret place means that you have the consciousness of the approval of God in your life, just as Jesus did when he was here on earth. And when God withdrew himself from Christ in Gethsemane, Jesus felt alone. He felt that the approval of God had been withdrawn. This is what gave him the greatest anguish and made him sweat great drops of blood. But when all was dark and foreboding, when he could not feel or see evidence of God's presence and approval, Christ relied on his previous assurances, his previous experience with God, and by faith fixed his mind on God's promises. You see, my friends, this is the way we must also live today, and if you cannot see and feel God's presence, go back to his promises. Reaffirm your faith in him through them, and trust God for the outcome. I went through a very dark time in my life. The only way I could have courage and hope was the assurance that God had been with me in the past that God had blessed my efforts in the past. And sure enough, he opened up the future. And now as I look back on it, I can see his hand every step of the way. I could not see it when in the midst of the trouble. I struggled, I prayed, I pled with God to provide answers, but that dark struggle was ordained of God for my benefit. I learned to trust him more fully. We need such experiences, my friends. They're for our own good.
And if you're in the secret place of the Most High, you will have the same experience. It will grow and deepen. Eventually, you will be cut off from all human support and will have to rely totally on the promises of God. That's where God actually wants to take you. Here's another one. This is from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 4, page 529. The hour of man's necessity is the hour of God's opportunity. When all human support fails, then Jesus comes to our aid, and his presence scatters the darkness and lifts the cloud of gloom. Isn't that wonderful? Your confidence in God's power to sustain you is what will carry you through when you cannot see him. When he is shrouded in darkness and silence, even though you're going through pain, you must claim the promises of God's love and power. Most people think this is too nebulous and don't want to do that. We often want to take the reins in our own hands. They want to solve problems themselves. But this only leads to making wrong moves. This only separates us from God. We have to learn to see that trusting in God's love for us personally and in his power to overcome the enemy is the only thing that is real and solid when all human support is cut off. Here's another fantastic statement. It's from the Review and Herald, August 14, 1894. Whatever may be the position of trust that a man occupies, he is not raised above the frailties of humanity. His position does not make him sinless or divine. He must receive wisdom and goodness and power from the same sources as others, and this source of supply is open to the lowliest and the least. Oh, I like that. So one aspect of this support is wisdom. That has to do with the mind. First and foremost is the wisdom that God gives you to navigate your daily life. Perhaps there's nothing more important than that. Wisdom keeps you from making mistakes. And that is very practical and very real, very concrete. It is not nebulous. When your mind is under the control of God, you rise above the low, selfish wisdom of the world. The Bible says, And thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, This is the way, walk ye in it. When ye turn to the right hand, and when ye turn to the left, Isaiah thirty twenty one, that still small voice behind you is the Holy Spirit, and he is promised to all those who are in the secret place. It may not be an audible voice, but if you are tuned into it, you will sense the impressions of the Holy Spirit leading you and guiding you. It will point out to you when you are faced with a temptation to do wrong. It will prompt you to turn from it and reject it. Friends, that's how you have victory over sin. And that brings us to another concrete aspect of this so-called nebulous support. When you are in the secret place and you rely solely on God, He imparts goodness to your character the fruits of the Spirit. That goodness comes through in your actions and words and gives you discretion and kindness. It gives you sympathy for others and a great desire to help lost souls. That goodness even shines through in your countenance. And people see it and they're drawn to you and you can witness to them. Oh, friends, this is something we need if we want to be like Christ and dwell in the secret place. We need the goodness of God in our hearts. Christ will make you like him. Your character will be just like his. Christ was all goodness, and the fullness of God was in him. And friends, Christ promises that to you too, and to me also in these last days. The third concrete and practical aspect of this so-called nebulous support is power. 
God's power is imparted to the one who wholly trusts in him. Whenever you have a temptation, whenever you have a problem, whenever you have a practical crisis, God will impart his power into your life and give you the power to resist temptation, overcome sin, and the power to lead other hearts to Christ. Now especially listen to the next part of that statement I was reading to you. Jesus has invited you to come unto him. You are not obeying Christ when you go to human sources for support and consolation. Think about that, my friends. That's powerful. To obey Christ means that you must not rely on human beings for support, emotional support or otherwise. Rely only on Christ. All three of these things come from Christ into your soul. Wisdom, goodness, and power. And they're all very practical and intimately connected to every minute of your daily life. You need to be in Christ. You need to be in the secret place if you want to navigate the difficult times ahead when all human support is cut off. I'll continue reading from the article in the Review and Herald. Is this not the reason why the people of God are destitute of the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Is this not the reason why their religious experience is of so dwarfed a character? Satan exults as he sees men looking to men and trusting to men to be the wisdom for them. The soul that looks to men as to God is left exposed to the temptations and assaults of the enemy. And the evil one sees to it that human defects shall mar the work of God. Wow! Do you want to be left to the temptations and assaults of the enemy of your soul? I don't. Again, that is very practical, very concrete. It is the inner soul that needs to come under control, not the elements of my circumstances or my daily problems. If my inner soul is under control of heaven, then whatever problems, whatever chaos, whatever circumstances, whatever difficulty or pain, Christ infuses wisdom, goodness, and power to joyfully steer through it with grace. Oh, my friends, let us learn to depend on God. Let us learn to live in full confidence of God's power and love for us. Now, let us apply this principle to the time just before the close of probation. Here's a statement from Desire of Ages, page 122 and 123. In the last great conflict in the controversy with Satan, those who are loyal to God will see every earthly support cut off. Because they refuse to break his law in obedience to earthly powers, they will be forbidden to buy or sell. It will finally be decreed that they shall be put to death. Okay, so this is telling us that in the last moments of earth's history, God's people will be faced with a choice. They will have to obey the global worship laws or be cut off from all earthly support. What is earthly support? Well, that's talking about money. Most people view money as their support, and if they don't have any money, they get government welfare or some other form of financial aid so that they can buy food and clothing and pay for shelter. Just about everything in this world costs money. If you don't have any source of money, you must get a job so that you can live, right? Yes, we all must have money to live, or at least that's how we are taught. And some people go after money with all of their passion. But most people panic when they run out of money. It's very stressful for them. And if they're threatened with the loss of a job or if they're threatened with the loss of government benefits, they freak out. How am I going to live, they ask. How am I going to survive without money? 
Yet they forget that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can provide support for them. It doesn't have to be the us in the usual way. Many times God has provided in unusual ways. For instance, think about the manna that the people of Israel were given every single day of their wanderings in the wilderness. The whole nation had to depend on God for their physical food. Was God up to it? Of course he was. His hand is not short. You can trust him. The principle of dependence is gradually developed in your life. You have to develop this over time, not all at once. God is working in your life through various ways and means, through dilemma, perplexity, crisis. Yes, God's working. He's working to alienate your affections and loyalty from human systems and structures so that your life becomes fully dependent on Him. That's really what He's doing, you see. You still can use earthly systems while you can, but when they're cut off, you adjust so that you can continue your life and ministry to whatever extent you can, if necessary, without these things. One day you will no longer have access to the Internet. You'll have to go without. Can you survive without the Internet? Probably. Would you have to adjust your life without the Internet? Certainly. After all, it's very pervasive these days. But if you suddenly could not buy or sell, your bank accounts are frozen, your credit cards are blocked, what would you do then? That would require a much greater adjustment, wouldn't it? That's something that would scare most people to death, and they would be anxious to comply with any requirement to get their money and their ability to buy and sell back again. What would you do? How would you survive if your boss came to you one day and told you that he was no longer permitted to employ you because you were listed on a government blacklist? What would you do if you got a notice in the mail from the Social Security Administration that you would not receive any further Social Security checks because your name has been blacklisted because of your faith? I think this would be devastating to some people who cannot conceive of depending on God fully. We have to practice it now. And they will not have practiced it. They haven't gotten used to it. They haven't even hardly thought about it. Getting cut off would create panic. It would also create a temptation to compromise their faith in order to continue to receive the benefits or the job or the money in their bank. Most people will collapse in one big heap and follow the dictates of man concerning their worship. They will not be willing to make the substantial adjustments that will need to be made if they were to be cut off. The reason they fear, my friends, is because they are not in the secret place of the Most High. Well, friends, we must learn how to depend on God. He knows how to sustain you in the midst of trial. And as we near the intense time of trouble, just before Jesus comes again, God plans to give us the opportunity to show His power in our lives. He wants to get us to the place where we will be willing to go all the way and be fully dependent on His power and not our own. He will pour His power into His people that dwell in the secret place of the Most High. And the latter rain will do a wonderful work. These people will demonstrate their loyalty. And like the children in the wilderness, their bread and water shall be sure. Isaiah 33:16. And just so you can tie all this together, listen to this from Isaiah 30, verse 20. What is bread and water spiritually? Here it is. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner any more, but thine eyes shall see thy teachers. 
You see, bread can represent adversity, and water can represent affliction. These are your teachers. They help you learn to trust God. He will sustain you even when you have no other means of support. This is an experience that most of us have never had. We always have food in our bellies, we always have water to drink, but there is coming a time when even that will seem to be cut off. Yet Christ will sustain his faithful ones. Perhaps he'll provide manna, who knows? But he'll do it. There will be a maximum crisis for God's people, but he'll give them maximum power and will sustain them through it. You're building up to that now if you're allowing God to work in your life. If you're going through a crisis, this is the time to think of it as God's way of getting you ready for what's coming upon the earth as an overwhelming surprise. We are not to depend on money. We are not to depend on the government. We are not to depend on our family. We're not to depend on our bank accounts or our assets. We are not to depend on any human system or structure. We are not to depend on our friends for emotional sympathy either. God has many practical and even miraculous ways to provide. I'm not saying that we should all give up our jobs and go into seclusion and see how God provides. We're to live in the world, though we are not to be of it. That means our loyalty to God is not going to be shaken when we are cut off from all earthly support. Now, I want to talk to you about another angle on the matter of living in the secret place of the Most High. Not only do you have to get there by surrendering your life completely, unreservedly, in every area, but you also have to stay in there. It is possible to leave the secret place of the Most High at any time. You're not forced to stay there. You are free to choose where you want to dwell. So what kind of person dwells in the secret place? The Bible gives us a very good answer. If you're living in the secret place of the Most High, you will have the fruits of the Spirit. Here they are, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Did you hear that word temperance? What does that mean? That word temperance means self-control. It is not just about abstaining from alcohol. It is not just about abstaining from any damaging substance or addiction, whether it's tea, coffee, or caffeine drinks, smoking, or any other kind of drug, or whatever you think temperance includes. Temperance has to do with your whole life, your whole existence. Everything is in balance in heaven's way when you are in a temperate way of living. There is a certain worldly balance that many people advocate. And for example, they might say to you, to be in balance, you have to watch a movie once in a while. But can a Christian behold wickedness and evil and be unstained by it? Of course not. If you dwell in the secret place, you are wholly consecrated to God. And like Daniel, you will do nothing that will defile you. Temperance also involves your spirit and how you react to situations. If you get angry and have to have your own way, you're not practicing temperance. Temperance involves what you eat and how much you eat. It involves your exercise and other aspects of body health. Let's talk about health for a moment. All lifestyle disease is a result of a lack of self-control. Did you know that? That's right. All lifestyle diseases are a result of a problem with self-control or an imbalance. Take heart disease, for instance. If you eat flesh food, and lots of dairy products, 
and eggs, and you don't get exercise and fresh air, you aren't having temperance. You will have a heart problem, heart disease. You will have occluded arteries, and you'll need open-heart surgery to replace those vessels and prevent death by heart attack. What about diabetes? Well, diabetes is about intemperance, too. It's about eating in between meals and carrying too much weight, eating too many sweets like sodas and other sugary things and a bunch of other lifestyle issues. So fundamentally, diabetes is a problem of temperance or self-control, too. What about obesity? Well, that's rather obvious, isn't it? Obesity is a problem of eating too much and eating the things that are full of fat and other substances that create obesity. It's a matter of self-control. All lifestyle disease is a result of a lack of temperance or self-control. And there are also other diseases that come upon us because we lack self-control. For instance, some viral infections can attack you when your immune system is low. Cancers can get traction in your system if you have a compromised immune system, too. Keeping your immune system strong is vital to preventing these diseases so far as possible. That includes getting lots of exercise, the proper amount of sleep, the best nutrition, avoiding lots of sugary sweets and anything that's going to make your body more acid, a balanced diet, and many other things. It's not beyond your control. These things involve your personal decisions. You can't avoid it. Your decisions must be under the control of the Holy Spirit. That means that in every decision you make, you will consult the will of God. This is something we have to practice. And when you're tempted with that piece of chocolate, you have to consult the Holy Spirit. Some people just reach for it, even without thinking about it. And when you're tempted with that ice cream, you have to make a decision. Do you consult yourself and justify doing something that you know isn't good for you? Or do you consult the Holy Spirit? Lord, what would you have me to do? Sometimes it's easy. Other times there are strong forces pulling you in the direction of the temptation. Self-control at times will require a struggle. Other times, it will not be so powerful, depending on what the issue is. And when you compromise your self-control and you get angry at your children or your spouse or at anyone else or any other thing, you lose your spiritual control. Here's a powerful statement from My Life Today, page 70. He who has learned to rule his spirit will rise above the slights and rebuffs, the annoyances to which we are daily exposed and these will cease to cast a gloom over his spirit. Wow, some people don't have control over their passions. They engage in practices that destroy the sanctity of the soul and build up lust and sensual desire. This is not self-control. It's passion. So if you're living in the secret place of the Most High, you will have self-control. But self-control must become comprehensive. Some people have no temptation with smoking. Others struggle with it. No one can entice me with alcohol, but most people would struggle to get rid of it if they understood what it is. But what does comprehensive self-control mean? It means, my friends, that in every area of your life, you are under self-control. Not one area is out of balance. Others do not control you. You are under the control of yourself, or rather, under the control of God. And if you give yourself to God... He will transform you and give it back to you. That way, when you use your will and you are under self-control, you are doing only that which Christ would do. That's significant. Comprehensive self-control is vital to have in your life, my friends, if you want to dwell in the secret place. 
Here it is from Desire of Ages, page 668. All true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. The will, refined and sanctified, will find its highest delight in doing his service. And when we know God as it is our privilege to know him, our life will be a life of continual obedience. Through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, sin will become hateful to us. Wow, what a fantastic experience, my friends. Imagine sin can become hateful to us. That's when Christ has purified us so much that he can trust us with eternity. That's when he can leave the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary, close earthly probation, and return for his people. They will no longer sin because they hate it so much. They are so in tune with heaven that even the subtlest temptation is discerned and avoided. That still small voice behind them is very recognized and very active. Listen to this interesting verse. Proverbs 16.32 says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. So you are stronger than the mightiest general on earth that ever won a battle if you rule over your temper. Oh, that's quite a statement. Do you want to be better than a military general in the eyes of God? Then get yourself under self-control. Again from My Life Today, page 70. The highest evidence of nobility in a Christian is self-control. He who can stand unmoved amid a storm of abuse is one of God's heroes. Did you hear that? You can be one of God's heroes. Self-control has to do with the balance of the mind. And the mind is in balance if you do not have self-control. When you are under the control of Satan, he distorts your mind and you cannot see things as you should. But under the control of Christ and learning from him through the scriptures, you regain the correct understanding of things both in the world and in whatever affects your eternal salvation. And listen to this one. Again, from My Life Today, page 80. What young men and women need is Christian heroism. God's word declares that he that ruleth his spirit is better than he that taketh a city. To rule the spirit means to keep self under discipline. God's abounding love and presence in the heart will give the power of self-control and will mold and fashion the mind and character. The grace of Christ in the life will direct the aims and purposes and capabilities into channels that will give moral and spiritual power, power which the youth will not have to leave in this world, but which they can carry with them into the future life and retain through the eternal ages. What is Christian heroism? That's an interesting term. Well, here's another statement from the same reference that we need to contemplate. The man or woman who preserves the balance of the mind when tempted to indulge passion stands higher in the sight of God and heavenly angels than the most renowned general that ever led an army to battle and to victory. Wow, imagine that. The world extols great victors and conquerors in history. The history books are full of legends and quotes of men like Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Douglas MacArthur, and thousands more. 
How do you get to have greater esteem in the eyes of God and other heavenly beings than the most victorious and renowned earthly general? Well, it's the one who is victorious over self, the one who maintains his balance over impulse and passion. To my mind, this is almost incredible. What an aspiration to be esteemed higher than these battle-hardened heroes of history in the eyes of God is truly saying something. To be battle-hardened against my passions is of more value to God than these men. That tells me that God loves to help me be victorious over sin and temptation. He would empty heaven of all its resources if that would give me the power to resist my passions and maintain self-control. The greatest provocations are often the things people say or do. Often we unleash with an unmeasured torrent of words, and we lower ourselves in the eyes of man. But more sadly, we stoop low in the eyes of God. What a tragedy! And what a happy moment when we maintain our equilibrium and don't get upset or angry or in any other way sin against God with our lips or even in our thoughts. Here is a little more from that same reference. It is God's purpose that the kingly power of sanctified reason, controlled by divine grace, shall bear sway in the lives of human beings. He who rules his spirit is in possession of this power. What power can you be in possession of? The power of sanctified reason. Notice also that it is kingly power. In other words, if you can rule your spirit, you have kingly power. Oh, my friends, what gratification. What happiness when you have the conscious awareness of a controlled spirit. How can I get that? How can it be mine? Well, my friends, it only comes to me when I am under the power of divine grace. And I can only have divine grace when I give myself to God every moment of every day. And you must do it too. Martin Luther understood this great principle. He said, I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all his cardinals. I have within me the great Pope, self. My friend, if you want to be in the secret place of the Most High, and if you want to enjoy heavenly communion with the angels of God and God himself, you must daily let go of your self-centeredness and take the God of the universe in your heart. Then you become a hero in the eyes of God, you will have won the greatest victory there is, or ever was, the victory over self. There's a song written by one of my favorite composers. It's called Make Me a Captive Lord by George Matheson. The language of this song portrays what needs to happen in the soul so that we may have control over the Pope within. Listen carefully. Make me a captive Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conqueror be. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. You see, you cannot be strong and free unless you are captive to Christ, and enwrapped and imprisoned in his love. The second stanza goes like this. My heart is weak and poor, till it a master find. It has no spring of action, sure. It varies with the wind. It cannot freely move till thou hast wrought its chain. Enslave it with thy matchless love, and deathless it shall reign. 
That's not talking about the wind, as most people mistakenly think. That's referring to a clock, an old-fashioned clock with a chain and weights to pull, the, to pull it down. The clock cannot properly function and keep time unless the chain is pulled and the weights are in action. Our hearts are variable, but Christ gives them stability and consistency, and they're like a clock. They work tick-tock, tick-tock, just as he would have them. Here's the third stanza. My will is not my own, till thou hast made it thine. If it would reach a monarch's throne, it must its crown resign. It only stands on bent amid the clashing strife, when on thy bosom it has lent, and found in thee its life. Oh, friends, did you hear that? You cannot truly reign over your will and have total comprehensive self-control until you have resigned your crown and given it over to Christ, the crown of self. Then you can have the fullness of power to overcome the devil. So, my friends, let go. Stop defending your turf. Stop trying to solve your own problems. Stop, stop trying to protect your reputation. Let God have your will. Let God have all your selfishness, all your ambitions, all your earthly and worldly desires. And by the way, the study of willpower is one of the hottest topics in research today. It happens that there are quite a number of published books and other works on this topic dealing with self-control. Even secular people want to know the secrets of self-control. But they aren't interested in the secret place of the Most High. They are only interested in certain aspects of self-control. And what most people don't realize, and what is most natural to the carnal heart, is that the key to self-control is self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice removes your self-interested agendas in favor of giving some benefit to someone else. Changing someone else's life for the better is the most gratifying thing to the mind and brings great satisfaction. It brings you joy. In the secret place you have joy because this is how you live. You live to benefit others. Now here is one other statement that gives us the way into the secret place of the Most High. No one can occupy a neutral position. There is no middle class who neither love God nor serve the enemy of righteousness. Christ is to live in his human agents and work through their faculties and act through their capabilities. Their will must be submitted to his will. They must act with his spirit. Then it is no more they that live, but Christ that lives in them. He who does not give himself wholly to God is under the control of another power, listening to another voice whose suggestions are of an entirely different character. Half and half service places the human agent on the side of the enemy as a successful ally of the hosts of darkness." That's from Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 94. Oh, friends, I don't want to be on the side of the enemy. Living in the secret place means that we have a practical way of dealing with others. And here it is from my life today. If we would be true lights in the world, we must manifest the loving, compassionate spirit of Christ. To love as Christ loved means that we must practice self-control. It means that we must show unselfishness at all times and in all places. It means that we must scatter around us kind words and pleasant looks. These cost the giver nothing, but they leave behind a precious fragrance. Their influence for good cannot be estimated. 
not only to the receiver but to the giver they are a blessing for they react upon him genuine love is a precious attribute of heavenly origin which increases in fragrance and proportion as it is dispensed to others jeremiah 33:3 3 should be our mantra here's what it says call unto me and i will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not the mightiest thing that God can show you or do for you is to bring your self-centered will under the control of His divine grace. When you are tempted to retaliate or speak a rash word, call upon Christ, and He will bring you under control of His Spirit. That will keep you in the secret place of the Most High. It is secret because it is a hidden thing that goes on in your heart. But it isn't secret in how it manifests itself in kind and gracious words and actions when provoked. So what is your life mission? What is it that is your compelling interest? Is it Christ and His glory? Or is it something earthly? If you want to live in the secret place of the Most High and be under the shadow of the Almighty, your life mission is to control your passions. Friends, if you don't love Christ with all your heart, and if you don't love Jesus with all your mind, you will never enter into the secret place of the Most High. But when you do, you can never fall into temptation and lose your self-composure or self-control. You never yield to passion or compromise your standing in heaven, even by an evil thought. It is always your priority to ask, what would Jesus do in this situation? How would Jesus react? Oh, friends, I want this experience. This is what the secret place living is all about. It is not a place where you can go right now. It is a way of living, and it is the living way. It is the secret of happiness. And may the Almighty give you His grace to open your heart, to fill you with His love, and bring you into the experience of living under the protective shadow of the Almighty. God bless you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for telling us about the secret place and the experience we can have when we dwell there. We long to have the peace of God in our hearts, and we long for your love to overshadow us. We long to have the joy of ministering to others. And most of all, we want to be so much in harmony with heaven and with our wonderful Savior that we can hate sin so much that we abandon it. We want to be there in the secret place when Christ leaves the most holy place and human probation is forever closed. We want to live in Christ throughout the time of trouble. Please, Father, Put your spirit in our hearts, that we may love like Jesus loves, that we may live as Jesus lived. And we'll thank you through all eternity for your love and power to overcome the enemy in our own hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
We hope you have been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us, and thank you for your support. The song you've just heard is called He Hideth My Soul, played by Henry Higgins. It is recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called Day by Day. This beautiful CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry, and if you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends or family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we will gladly send them. Please mention the Day by Day CD. Our international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing a feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item, Germany building an EU army. Prominent German think tanks and politicians are calling for the establishment of an EU army, wrote German foreign policy. It's not just that Germany is rearming itself. Far more is involved. Germany aims to control any European military that might be created. Already, integration options are starting to happen, such as embedding a paratrooper unit from the Netherlands under German command for covert operations and counterinsurgency, and is seen as a milestone of integration. Soon, an armored contingent, also from the Netherlands, will be attached to a German cavalry unit, and the European Air Transport Command, based in the Netherlands, is already under a German commander. These are being praised as effective models of cooperation for all of Europe. But the subordination of the Netherlands' 11th Airborne Brigade paratroopers under German command represents an unprecedented loss of sovereignty for the Netherlands. Other nations that join the integration will also have their sovereignty stripped away. Never before since modern times has a European country's military unit been included in a major military unit of another European country. No state has ever renounced this fundamental core component of its sovereignty, wrote Foreign Policy. The German Ministry of Defense has published a paper which said, the current financial crisis has clearly shown some European countries that sovereignty built on autonomy is illusory. That's like saying that in order to have sovereignty, nations must give up their sovereignty. But more precisely, it means that in order for Europe to exercise global power and influence, the individual nations must give up their sovereignty. The German defense minister, Ursula von der Leyen, of the CDU said that the cooperation between the Netherlands and Germany is a new era and will serve as a model for a joint defense and security policy. The Bundeswehr declared that the collaborative efforts means that the two nations are marching in the front ranks of progress and that the new subordination relationship is a historically unique, unprecedented occurrence. Vice President of the European Parliament Alexander Graf Lambsdorff, from the FDP of Germany, expressed it this way, Only a European approach to military matters can assure that the economic giant Germany will not remain a political dwarf when defending Western values and interests. And the German Institute for International and Security Affairs says there are good reasons for establishing an EU army. 
They believe the transformation or downgrading of the USA's global role and the current financial crisis offer new options for European integration. Europe will have to assume more responsibility around the world, they say. Hans-Peter Bartels of the SPD, chair of the Defense Committee of the German Bundestag, said that the time has come for taking concrete steps toward a European army. And the German government's coalition contract says, we are striving for an ever closer association of European armed forces, which can be developed into a parliamentary-controlled European army. To understand that this is about German hegemony, it is important to know that Germany controls the European Parliament. Even the German media has been openly calling for a common European army, saying that the Bundeswehr is the trailblazer for a European army. The picture is becoming clearer. Germany is aiming to restore its military power, but not just by itself. It's aiming at regional or European military power by gradual integration of the militaries of the European nations. Gradual integration, like in every other area of the European Union, is the way in which Germany increases its power and control. Charlemagne established the Holy Roman Empire by creating a common currency, a common military, and a common religion. Germany is pushing for the restoration of that Holy Roman Empire by the same exact means. The papacy is standing by, waiting to reestablish her worship, and finally, once and for all, undo all that Protestantism has done, particularly in Germany and other European nations, especially in the north. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Revelation 17, verses 12 and 13. Rome is using Germany to reestablish Charlemagne's empire. The Roman church is far-reaching in her plans and modes of operation. She is employing every device to extend her influence and increase her power in preparation for a fierce and determined conflict to regain control of the world, to reestablish persecution, and to undo all that Protestantism has done. Catholicism is gaining ground on every side. Next, Sabbath-keeping university honors Sunday-promoting Pope. Bar Ilan University in Israel marked its 60th anniversary by giving Pope Francis its highest award of distinction during a special reception at the Vatican. The president of the university, Rabbi Professor Daniel Hershkovitz, presented the award. As a microcosm of Israeli society, Bar Ilan's doors are open to students of all races and religions, he said. Bar Ilan University has been working to bridge gaps between various sectors of Israeli society for many years. It is therefore a deep privilege to be meeting with and honoring the Pope, who has taken it upon himself to undertake this tremendous task on a worldwide scale, said Herskovitz. The award was given in recognition of the papal promotion of peace and harmony among nations and religions defending the f and fighting for human rights, and for his contribution to understanding and tolerance between Christians and Jews. Papal warmth toward the Jewish nation during his official visit to Israel was also mentioned. 
Note that the Seventh-day Sabbath-keeping university honored the man of sin who is promoting Sunday worship. In order for the Jews to align with the New World Order religion, they must find ways to elevate the Pope in the minds of Jews on religious and political grounds. All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Revelation 13, verse 8. Next. Scientists turn to the Pope and religion to save the planet. At least one group of scientists are hoping that religion can save the planet. An essay published in the journal Science has argued that scientists and faith leaders should unite to fight climate change and habitat destruction. Engaging religious leaders would be the key to mobilizing billions of people to change aspects of their lifestyles to prevent catastrophic climate change. Saying that religion can combine moral leadership and global organizational structures, the article calls on the Pope to influence his network of 1.2 billion believers, but wants all faith leaders of every religion to join the fight. The article comes as the Pope is finalizing a papal encyclical on the environment, which will put the full weight of the Catholic Church behind the movement. The transformational step may very well be massive mobilization of public opinion by the Vatican and other religions, wrote the authors. Professor Virabhadran Ramanathan, a climate scientist at the University of California, San Diego, and Professor Sir Partha Dasgupta, an economist based at St. John's College, Cambridge. They say that economic or market incentives or penalties alone will not solve the problem. It requires the moral leadership that religious institutions offer. Professor Naomi Oreskes, historian of science at Harvard, said, This is a watershed moment. Professors Dasgupta and Ramanathan remind us that we are all responsible for the common good. Even secular scientists now wonder after. Revelation 13, verse 3. Next. Beheadings increase as Islamic State urges killing of unbelievers. Have you noticed how many people are being publicly and cruelly beheaded lately? The Internet has become a sea of blood and violence as Islamic State fighters have gone on a beheading spree. Islamic State spokesman Abu Muhammad al-Adnani said, IS fighters are ready to fight the U.S.-led coalition and welcome the possibility of a ground war. He also called on Muslims worldwide to kill civilians of nations that join the coalition. O oh, believer, do not let this battle pass you by wherever you may be. You must strike the soldiers, patrons, and troops of the tyrants. Strike their police, security, and intelligence members. Al-Adnani said in a statement, IS is known for beheading its enemies, sometimes in mass, even putting severed heads on poles and displaying them publicly. IS militants say that Western fighters will eventually return to wreak havoc in their own countries. And if you can kill a disbelieving American or European, especially the spiteful and filthy French, or an Australian, or a Canadian, or any other disbeliever from the disbelievers waging war, including the citizens of the countries that joined a coalition against the Islamic State, then rely on Allah and kill him in any manner or any way, however it may be, he said. Militants in Algeria seized a French citizen, and in a statement they said they would kill the man in response to al-Adnani's appeal if France did not withdraw from the coalition. 
French warplanes are conducting airstrikes against IS in Iraq. The man was beheaded. Al-Adnani, the founder of the formal Islamic State Caliphate under the leadership of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, sees the war with the West as a final apocalyptic war with its historic roots in the medieval crusades. Recently, Muslim extremists have beheaded at least four victims, including two American journalists, a British aid worker, and a French citizen who had been hiking in Algeria. The IS has been threatening to behead others. Meanwhile, police are investigating the beheading of a woman at an Oklahoma company by a man who had been trying to convert co-workers to Islam. Alton Nolan, who had been fired from his job at Von Foods Processing Plant, attacked Colleen Hufford, 54, with a knife and beheaded her. Nolan was shot and wounded by a former CEO of the company after attacking a second worker, stopping the rampage. Investigators said the FBI was looking into Nolan's background after his former co-worker said he had tried to convert them to Islam after recently converting himself. On May 22, 2014, British military fusilier drummer was killed on the streets of London in an attempted beheading by Muslim extremists, and a grandmother had her head taken off by a machete while gardening in her backyard in a suburb of London. The perpetrator, Nicholas Salvadori, was also a convert to Islam. And recently, police in Australia arrested six Muslims in connection with an alleged plot to behead random people on the streets of Sydney on camera with an Islamic state flag draped over their heads. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark in their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 4. A practice which is ugly and horrific at first is normalized by frequency. By beholding it enough, the general population becomes desensitized and begins to accept it as normal. Once accepted, there's only a small step to adopting it and using it against real or perceived enemies. Public beheadings are preparing the nations to do the same to the followers of Jesus who refuse to participate in the coming global worship laws and receive the mark of the beast. While the prophecy of Revelation 20 verse 4 seems unlikely or even impossible now, many of God's true people will eventually suffer this punishment. It is important to note that Satan often reveals what he has in store for those who love Jesus. Keep God's word and uphold his holy Sabbath. Terrorism or extremism is the perfect justification for resurrecting the principles of the barbaric inquisition in modern developed nations. And both the extremists and their opponents resort to cruel and unusual methods to achieve their goals. Once matured and accepted, these methods will be turned against the true people of God. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It has been a great pleasure to spend this time with you, and I hope you've been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life, and that right now, you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support, and until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.